Let's pray together. God, you were here long before us. And you will be here long after we are gone. And we know in our heads, God, that you are with us in every moment of our lives, but sometimes it's hard to realize that when we're living those moments. So we need your help. Because, God, the times that we know your presence is with us, when we can sense you and, and feel you with us, it just makes it easier to get through the hard times and it makes all the celebrations even that much greater. And so, God, we want more of you. Help us to tune our hearts so that we can hear you speak with you. And as we open your word this morning, Lord, help us to find the truth of it and help the truth go deep into our souls so that good fruit will spring forth from it. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in uh, the middle of a sermon series that we're doing a few more weeks of, actually, um, where we're, we're calling it Traveling Through the Bible. And there's... There's no real rhyme or reason to any of where we're going in the Bible, except that uh, I know that summertime is a time that a lot of us travel and do a lot of different things, and I also don't want anybody to feel bad about that. If you have to miss church, or if you're going to miss church because you're off and you're traveling with your family and you're going to see things and see people, I want you to go and do that and enjoy that, and, and I don't want you to feel like you need to come back and say, hey, Ross, sorry we missed church, we've been traveling, and that's ridiculous. Go and travel and have fun and do life and be the best version of you that you can while you're doing those things. But to honor that, I wanted us to talk about some places where if I were a, a, tour, a tour guide like leading you through the Bible, some places that I would want to take you to that spark my curiosity, hoping that they will spark your curiosity. So the first place we went was the Valley of Elah. That's where David and Goliath had their big, big fight. And we talked about how God gave David everything David needed to be able to slay the monster that was in front of him. And he put on Saul's armor, thinking that Saul's armor was something that he needed, and realized if I go out there and try to fight in someone else's armor, and the gifts that God gave someone else, I won't be able to kill this monster in front of me. And so he took off Saul's armor and picked up five stones and grabbed his sling and stepped out in faith, trusting that God had provided for him everything he needed up to that point. We... Um, and right now, uh, honestly, I'm blanking on the other places we've been. Anybody help me out? Uh, you are too then. Okay. What was that? Oh, yeah. We went to the green pastures in Psalm 23 and talked about how uh, God provides for us today what we need to get through tomorrow and that the green pastures aren't necessarily like lush, tall, green meadows of alfalfa, but it's just tufts of grass that we need to nourish us for these moments that we're in now. And um, today we're going to um, a place called Engedi, and I want to show you on a map where that place is before we start talking about it. So I've got this fancy dancy laser pointer here that I've always wanted to use. Engedi is about right here, right there around where that D is, and this is the uh, the map of the kingdom of Saul. So 
We're going to be reading in 1 Samuel today. And so almost anything that you would be reading in 1 Samuel takes place on this map. And so this wilderness area that runs right through here, we'll talk about that in a moment also. But when we talk about En Gedi, this is a picture of En Gedi. And you can see that there's a waterfall coming down, and there's a grotto off to one side there. And uh, this is kind of an oasis in the desert. And scripture talks about En Gedi as the place of the wild goats. And today, at En Gedi, there are a lot of ibex that live there. So if you're familiar with the Florida mountains and the ibex hunt that happens in the Floridas, it's a similar type of animal that lives uh, around these types of places in the En Gedi wilderness. And so they go there because there's always water there. To catch you up before we start reading this story, I need to tell you, first of all, David is not my favorite character in Scripture. And I can say this as a little brother. David is the epitome of a little brother. He is just, in my opinion, mostly a twerp. And uh, he does some amazing things, and he does some really cool things, but he also does a couple of things in his life that are really hard for me to get over, like murder and rape, for one, or two, and it's just kind of hard for me to get past them, but I love kind of the idea of David being a person who is broken and sinful, and I mean like, when we're talking sin, we're talking the big ones, right? Like, the, the kinds of things that we never really want to be part of, this guy has gotten himself mixed up in, and God still uses him. In fact, God says that David is a man after God's own heart, and that tells me that people like me and you can be used and are used by God. And there's something really beautiful about that. That we are not defined by our sins. We are defined by the grace of God in our lives. A year ago, actually today, a year ago tomorrow, but a year ago this Sunday, I preached my very first sermon here. And I remember telling all of you basically what I just said. That is my sermon every week that I want you to hear. That you are loved by God. That you are liked by God. And that defines who you are. Not your sins and not your past. So I can stand here as a sinner and as a twerp of a little brother and say that David is a twerp and a person who I don't really like a whole lot. But I have a lot to learn from him. So this story that we're about to read, what happens is David slays Goliath, and then he gathers a following. I mean, when you're that kind of person who steps out in faith that way and does such a great act, people hear about it, right? And they start to kind of follow around him, and we're told that he's good-looking, and he has a lot of charisma, and he's just this really natural, strong leader. And God anoints him to be the king of Israel. But there is already a king of Israel whose name is Saul. And Saul has a son named Jonathan. And David and Jonathan, probably much to Saul's chagrin, become best friends. In fact, they make a covenant with one another to share their lives with one another, to protect one another at all costs. And David promises Jonathan that when he becomes king, he will not cut Jonathan off. That he would sacrifice his own life for Jonathan. And Jonathan says, I would sacrifice my life for you, which is very akin to a marriage covenant, by the way, in Scripture. And so these two guys, I'm not trying to say David and Jonathan got married. Don't, don't go writing on Facebook, all that kind of stuff. I'm just making the relation that these are covenant, uh, anyway, whatever. 
Boy. So David, Saul gets jealous, and he starts hunting for David. And David and his, his friendly band of rebels and outlaws, they head up into the mountains. They head into that wilderness that I was just pointing out to you. And there's some people who live in that wilderness, and they see them. They see David, and they see his band of outlaws. They're like the New Mexico regulators or something, right? And, and they get tracked down, and David and, his, and Saul and the special forces catch up to him, and they literally are doing this thing where David is on one side of a mountain and Saul is on the other side, and they know that each other are there, and they're doing that thing where you just kind of go like that and you can't ever catch up or get away. I know you've played that when you're doing like hide-and-go-seek or tag or something as a kid. That's what's happening. And in the process of that game of tag that they're playing, Saul finds out that the Philistines are coming to attack, and so Saul takes off to go and protect his kingdom against the Philistines. And then that, he goes and takes care of that business, and that's where we pick up this story. It's 1 Samuel chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul, Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to look for David and his men in the direction of the rocks of the wild goats. So that's the Ibex I were talking about, I was talking about. And these 3,000 men are like, are like the special forces. He grabbed the green berets to go and track him down. He came to the sheepfolds beside the road where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Yes, that is what the Bible says Saul did. And that is what it means. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. The men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. I want you to know that this is the only place we know of this promise. Nowhere else in Scripture is there a place where you can find that God made that specific promise to David, which tells us two things. One is that either the writer of 1 Samuel wants us to know that this promise occurred, or two, that these men who were with David, his, his, his bandit friends, were trying to get him to kill Saul. And it seems natural, right? This guy is hunting him. He's the king. David's also going to be the king. It seems really natural that you could see that as God has now handed him over to me. Watch what happens. Then David went and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's cloak. Afterward, David was stricken to the heart because he had cut off a corner of Saul's cloak. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. Now, there's confusing language there. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. Notice one is capital and one is lowercase. So that's God forbid that I should do this thing to the king. But he's referring to Saul as my Lord, the person who has authority over me. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to raise my hand against him, for he is the Lord's anointed. So David scolded his men severely and did not permit them to attack Saul. Then Saul got up and left the cave and went on his way. 
the fact that Saul got up can tell you what Saul was doing. That's kind of, in an odd and weird way, I think it's, it, you need to understand that it was, he was not going number one. <laughs> Afterwards, David also rose up and went out of the cave and called Saul. Don't miss this part. Afterwards, David rose up and went out of the cave and called after Saul. My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and did absence. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of those who say, David seeks to do you harm? This very day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave, and some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not raise my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your cloak in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your cloak and did not kill you, you may know for certain that there is no wrong in, in treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you were hunting me to take my life. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the ancient proverb says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. Out of whom has the king of Israel come out? Or, I mean, against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. May he see to it and plead my cause and vindicate me against you. So here's, here's where we're at in the story. David and his band of outlaws are hiding out in a cave. There's a town not too far away, and some of them probably are having to go into town and get provisions and come back in occasionally. And so they probably got tracked back to this cave at some point, or this area anyway, not this specific cave. And Saul comes into the cave, and David and his men hear someone coming, most likely, and they move to the back of the cave. Has anybody ever been to the back of a cave where you turn off your headlamps? It is pitch black. Literally, as black as black could be. Did you know that in the innermost parts of a cave, night vision goggles will not work? Because night vision goggles require at least starlight or some sort of light that they can pull in to be able to use to help you see. Now, I've said this a lot of times that I grew up in Carlsbad, and there, they say that there are more caves in the Guadalupe Mountains outside of Carlsbad per square mile than anywhere outside of Afghanistan. And when I was in college, there was an interim period between fall and summer that they were offering a spelunking class in the mountains outside of Carlsbad. And so I took it because I needed a PE credit, and it was a quick two-week two PE class, and uh, it was right by my house, and so I got to go do this thing. And every single time we would crawl our way to the back of a cave and turn off the lights, it was incredible. You couldn't see your hand if it was right up against your face or if it were out far. There, there was no possible way that you could see. So David and his men moved to the back of the cave, which I take to mean beyond the ring of light 
And Saul probably came in right up to the ring of light. There's like an end to the light, right? Where you can't see deeper in, but you can turn around and see out. I think David and his men were in the darkness, and Saul could be seen, at least his silhouette, because the light was in front of him. David's men say, there he is, go kill him. Go kill him. If you kill him, you're king, and we win this whole thing. It's just like you and Goliath. This is your time. Go do it. And so David crawls up and does what the Plains Indians used to call counting coup. Counting coup was when you touch your enemy or you touch your enemy's weapon in the midst of battle and don't kill them or be killed by them. So he crawls up and he counts coup by cutting off a corner of David's garment. Now, some people, some scholars believe that he most likely, that some scholars think he had disrobed and that, Saul, that David cut off basically from like just above his waist what would be going all the way down. So imagine if that were the case, Saul's walking out with his backside exposed. I don't believe that. I think he just cut off a corner of his garment. Saul puts his clothes back on and walks outside. And for some reason, and I don't understand this part, David's heart is broken. He didn't do harm to Saul, so I don't really understand that part. But the part that I love is what we just read, where David walks outside, and I imagine he's standing on the edge of a rock, and Saul is now on the other side, out of spear's distance from him, and he yells out, Saul, my Lord. He even goes as far as to call him father. Why are you hunting me? I'm holding the receipt in my hand that I have no desire to cause harm to you. I had my chance. It would have been easy. But I'm not doing that. Why are you hunting me? Why do you believe people that say that I'm out to harm you? I'm just like a little dog or a flea to you that you're so powerful. Why are you doing this? Listen to what Saul says. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Today you have explained how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For who has ever found an enemy and sent the enemy safely away? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Now I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not wipe out my name from my father's house. So David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Because of my frustration with David, I've struggled a lot to think of Jesus as the son of David. 
And you read in the Gospels, a lot of times they'll call Jesus the son of David. And I'm like, oh, come up with some other name besides the son of David. David was a rapist and a murderer. And he did some other horrible things that I don't even want to talk about right now. Why the son of David? And I think now, I believe now, that this particular story is why they call Jesus the son of David. Because the way that's natural for us as humans, as Saul alludes to, is we grab power through physicality and through violence. We grab it physically and we can do it, we can grab it through violence with our words and with our actions. And David was contending with a man who had grabbed power and was always in the process of grabbing power through using violent means to do so. Sounds familiar, right? I feel like right now when I watch the news, almost every world leader that we have is in that, caught in that trap. But not the son of David, the prince of peace. Emmanuel. He never returns violence with violence. He returns forgiveness and grace and mercy for violence. He humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, to show us what this new kingdom looks like. I wonder what that world would look like if those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus actually lived this way. Have you ever had that experience where you're kind of in a contentious relationship with someone, you're kind of battling back and forth with them, it may be your spouse, it may be a co-worker, it may be a sibling, it may be someone you're related to, it could be your next door neighbor because your dogs bark too much, I don't know, it could be any type of contentious relationship, and then one person comes to you, the other person comes to you, and offers to say, I'm sorry. This is what I did in this situation. I'm not really out to get you. This is how I'm experiencing it. And it melts your heart. I don't know about you, but when that happens to me, I can't hardly stand it. Because it points back to me what I have done that is wrong. And it changes the nature of the thing. David obviously had every opportunity, or at least in this case, had the opportunity to end Saul's life and grab power the way that Saul had been grabbing power and the way that is natural to us. But instead, he chose the way of peace. I don't think there is anybody in this room that is an advisor to a world leader. I'm not even confident there's anybody in this room that's an advisor to a state leader. But we are advisors to ourselves. And we can change the world by changing ourselves and living out the way of Jesus that starts with David. We have these stories to remind us of where Jesus came from. 
and the way that Jesus was taught to live. 